living in the bigger picture. One of the things that will happen to you if you will read this book and devote your life to what it says and to do what it says is you will find it pulls you up into a much bigger picture than what you and I are born with. And so I want you to get ready tonight. I'm going to try again and stretch our thinking to try and embrace what Psalm 1 is telling us in these glorious last two verses. And so my first point is very simple. My first point is this, the bigger picture. And uh, we've been a bit concerned that over the last two weeks, you can pop to the next slide, thanks. Over the last two weeks, you might be misunderstanding us a little bit that this blessed life, we're only really talking about this life, this side of the grave. But friends, the psalmist in Psalm 1 is talking about a future orientation here. He's talking about a blessedness that is eternal. And friends, this Psalm 1 is talking about a day with a capital D. Ever heard of that? A day with a capital D. And if you want to know tonight, if you're checking out the Christian faith, you're so welcome. Maybe someone's brought you along and it's your first time here. I want to say it's a great night to come. Do you want to know what the Christian faith's true north is? Our compass for this life. It is this day that Psalm 1 verse 5 talks about, the judgment, this great day with a capital D, that orientates our life and how we choose to build our life in line with that direction of this great day determines how much happiness we experience now in this life and the next. And I want to say, as I'm talking even in this opening point, I want to say there's a lot of competition from contemporary culture at the moment. Three Sundays ago, I spoke about what is contemporary culture's verdict on what our authority is. That the 21st century, particularly westernized human being lives by. Well, this is the authority that culture calls us to. It is this is whatever feels good to me is right. That's how contemporary culture thinks. That's, that's the authority it says over our lives. Whatever feels good to me is right. And what that means is, this, is that Matt Johnson's highest authority in his life is Matt Johnson. Jared's highest authority in his life is Jared because supremely I decide what experience is good for me And what I feel to be right, that is my truth. That's how our contemporary culture thinks. So in other words, what works for you works for you. Ah, but what works for me works for me. And what is supreme in my life is my experience, is what feels good for me is right. And whatever is outside of that doesn't really matter. It's irrelevant. And I want to say we're in a bit of trouble for this reason. Is if you're going to live your life by that authority, my friend, It is very small-minded. Just think about it. If Matt Johnson, his feelings, my feelings, and my understanding of the universe, which is very limited, and my ability to know knowledge, and my ability through these five simple senses to grasp things I've never seen, never tasted, never touched, and to make that the framework for the decisions of my life. It is a very narrow way to live your life, my friend. It is a small-minded way. It is a constricted way, and we see it in culture today. What has been the effects of this philosophy on our culture? Well, a good way of assessing it is through the arts. What is culture calling the human race to give themselves in their thinking 
and their creativity and their uh, God-given ability to produce. Well, what is led is a very shallowness and fickleness in our culture. And friends, if you just do a quick study of 150 years ago, is if you look at the literature, the common man was reading Dickens. Anybody read Dickens here? It's amazing. The Bronte sisters. Any of you read Jane Eyre? Oh, I read that book last year. It was amazing. What about R.L. Stevenson or Austin or Oscar Wilde? Those are just some of the many, many authors that have blessed us with their brilliance. In a short space of time, the philosophy of that age produced some amazing thinkers. What about the music? I love music. And I looked at some of the Romantic period musicians. The list just went on and on and on on Google. Rachmaninoff, Liszt, Brahms, Chopin, Bronte. Not Bronte. Thank you. There's the music teacher laughing at me. <laughs> Beethoven. Saint Sons. I'll tell you, all the guys I marvel at in the space of about a hundred years, Rossini, Verdi, I mean these guys, Wagner, they were game changers. They were brilliant. And the average man enjoyed a level of stretching of thinking that this day and age knows nothing about. One of my favorites, guys, he, he's not a Christian, but he's a brilliant historian. His name's David Stark. He says, we're but just mere parasites of the 19th century. And he's right. You know what we left today with friends? Oh, I think that I found myself a cheerleader who is always right there when I need her. Rocks your world. I'm telling you, I want to live my life for that. And can I just give the lady some advice here? If your boyfriend compares you to sucking his thumb and his blankie, whenever he needs you, he pulls you out, you get out of that relationship as fast as you can, right? <laughs> I love you, I hate you, oh baby, oh baby. <laughs> make me feel good, don't make me think. And guys, I'm poking fun. I love a fun tune. My wife will tell you, I do love to break it down, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> guys laughed at me two weeks ago. My feelings were hurt. But I want to say to you, it's coming to the church. Ladies and gentlemen, as a preacher, I feel the pressure to make you feel good. So many guys are. You want to go and to the, the bookstores and, and the Christian go online, they'll all be motivational speakers. There are not many left who are willing to challenge the thinking of this age. And I tell you, 2 Timothy 4 is real for us. You have a generation, a generation that is accumulating teachers that will scratch where it itches because it feels good. But I want to say to you, my friends, that will not help you. Psalm 1 is like a wrecking ball for society's way of thinking. Because if we're going to enter into the blessed life, which unpacks in 149 Psalms afterwards, and don't worry, we're, going to, we're not going to preach through all of them, just to put your mind at ease. But I will say this, Psalm 1 is the, the entree, the wrecking ball of saying, guys, we need to smash through this facade of feeling and start to think about our lives, where it's going and what this all means. 
And I'll tell you what else. We, it creeps through in worship music. Do you know, Danny and I have this conversation often. You know how hard it is to find songs that sing more about God than ourselves? And friends, unless we are aware of these things, we're going to give our lives to things that are going to be blown away like chaff if it's not going to stand. And at the end of your life, I guarantee you, when you do some serious thinking then, which you'd wished you'd done 60 years before, you would have wished for the sermon tonight. Because what the Bible will do for you, my friend, is it will expand your horizons. And I want to unpack that a little bit tonight. Do you know what the Bible will tell you when you start to read it? It will tell you you were created by God, my friend, and you have received the greatest gift possible. It's called life. And far from some random cosmic clumsiness where you sort of just popped into existence, the fact that you take breath tonight is by the will of God that fashioned and formed you. Psalm 139 says, God took the time to think about the color of your eyes, the color of your hair, the color of your face, the color of your skin, the color of your voice. Everything was perfectly fashioned and formed with great purpose. And my friends, when he summoned you, he gave you the greatest gift. It is life. And not only did he give you life, my friend, he gave you a soul God forbid you would believe the lie of contemporary culture today that says you're just a bunch of senses that need to be gratified with moment-by-moment experiences. Did you hear that tonight? God has dignified your life with an eternal nature that is thirsty, my friend, and temporary things will not satisfy what you taste, what you touch, what you see, what you feel, and I can't remember what the fifth one is. Whatever it is, I tell you, my friend, it will not satisfy your soul. Because you were made in the image of God. What does that mean? You are made with the dignity of having a capacity to have a relationship with this God that made heaven and earth. And your life is caught up in a much bigger plan and purpose that is taking place. You know what the big result of sin is in the fall? I tell you what, I see to my little girl, she's four years old. The same thing happened to me. You know what the result of the fall was this? It's the day of our birth, we believe, was the greatest thing that happened to planet earth. I've arrived, and this is all for me, and I'm going to have as much pleasure as I can. Thank you, God, for creating this just for me. We believe we're the, we're the main part in the play. That's what we do. But if you open up the first, just the first verse of the Bible, it will rock your world. Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. My friend, amidst all the vastness of the universe, uncountable galaxies, solar systems and stars, he hung this little, little, little tiny planet called planet Earth. And in comparison to all this, we are like little lumps of carbon. An almost imperceptible flash in the vast timeline of billions of years. And this mighty creator, the God of heaven and earth, the one who called into being everything from nothing, is powerfully moving his creation towards a fixed and determined goal. He is center stage and he is fully in charge. The one who made all things is moving all things to the rhythm of his perfect purpose. And we, my dear ladies and gentlemen, are given a minuscule, small window of opportunity to play our part in his massive plan.
Do you know God not only gave you the gift of life tonight, 6 p.m.? He gave you the gift of time. And it's not a lot. And when you read your Bible, you'll find great men like Moses teaching the people to sing in Psalm 90 verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. My friend, you have an apportioned number of days. It is fixed by God. And some of us have more years than others. But I want to tell you, it's not going to last forever. It is a short time. And the Bible will get you to ask the question, how are you going to use it? How are you going to use it? Youth, those years go fast. I'm 34. I feel like a bully already. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking about for me? You know where the midlife crisis comes from that I believe? Is when you realize, actually, I have got 31 years, God willing, left in a pulpit. And after that, I'm not so sure. You know what hit me? I will never get to preach through the whole Bible in my entire life. And suddenly I'm asking, well, then what do I choose? You see, wisdom is realizing your time is not forever in this side of the grave. And you start to think differently about how you're going to live your life. And the wise man and the wise woman understands that while we are getting up in the morning, brushing our teeth, going to work, having those WhatsApp conversations, pursuing potential relationships, doing the things that ordinary life calls us to do, my friend, at any moment, God can interrupt your life through two ways. The first is he can call you home. Young. Or he can come through his second coming. It might be tonight. It might be on Friday. I don't know why I always say Friday, but um, it's somehow all potentially on Friday. <laughs> the greatest weekend ever. But here's the point. There is a much greater and vastly more significant period of time in comparison to this life called eternity. Which one are you going to prioritize? You see, we make so much of this life, of all those weekends away, all the things we want to taste and see and touch and smell. There's nothing wrong with that, but my friends, if that is your preoccupation and you never think about what's on the other side of life, which is what this culture wants you to do, I want to say to you, the years will pass and you will have nothing to show for it. And so, this is where we get to our text tonight. Psalm 1, verse 5 to 6. How we choose to live this short life matters in the next. We are called to be ready for that day. And Psalm 1, verse 5 to 6 says, Therefore, therefore, that's why Psalm 1 says, Therefore, in the light of these things, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Ah, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so my second point is really, really simple tonight. It is the call to be ready for that day, capital D. Do you know what blessed happiness is? And maybe this is a bit more real for you because we have to be around people that are dying more often than what you get to experience in your small family. But I'll tell you what blessed happiness is. It is largely being unafraid of death. I tell you what we are petrified of. Have you ever thought about it? What's death going to be like? 
How does that happen? What's the rite of passage? And the world, my friend, is terrified of dying. And you can ask yourself the question, what essentially is the worst thing that can happen in this life? It's the snatching of that life. It is death. It is death. And you talk to someone, like we did this last week, who is potentially dying from a terminal illness, and it reframes your life completely. Suddenly, all that overtime clocked in at work, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Suddenly, HCOM, hey, it doesn't matter. Suddenly, that uh, accolade that you got, let me tell you, I got a few, few awards for pharmacy. It counts for nada on that day. Nothing. You know what you'll be doing on that day? You'll be bargaining for more time. And so, friends, today, all the angst of life around ultimately little things, the grudges you hold against your family, I'll tell you on that day, you will never be going on your deathbed going, geez, I'm so glad I hold into that grudge for 15 years and it stopped me from living my life to the fullest degree. Yay. Awesome. <clears throat> But I say tonight, do you want to know, ladies and gentlemen, what the essence of our faith is here? Do you want to know what the Christian faith says? The Christian faith says this, you are not ready to live until you are ready to die. Are you ready? Because if you're not ready, you're not ready to live. And God forbid, I have to ask you the question tonight, if you had to leave through these doors, if you had to leave through these doors... And something tragic happened that took your life. I ask you the question, where would you go? Where would you go? Psalm 1 only gives two options. You can either stand with the righteous or you won't be because it'll, you'll be with the wicked. There are only two options here. Where will you go if God calls you to stand before him and he asks you the question, why should I let you into heaven tonight? I don't want you to move on to the next point until you can answer it in your mind. What will your answer be to God? It will happen. He will summon you to himself and say, why should I let you into heaven? What will your answer be? You got it? Nod. I tell you what, so often the answer is, it is this. I have tried or am trying to live a good life. Can I say that's commendable? We don't want Hitlers coming out of those doors. We really don't. It's commendable to want to live a good life. But my question to you tonight is this, and please do listen carefully. What is your standard of good? Do you know, the Bible calls God good. What that means is the standard of what you want your goodness to be measured by is God's perfect character. Do you want that? Because, my friends, if that is your hope and recourse that you are trying to or that you have lived a good enough life, the goodness that you're going to be measured against is the goodness of God. Anybody being able to match up to that tonight? And I say to you, I say to you, my friends, don't think God is casting your image. Don't think he's a reflection of what your judgment is. That he excuses what you excuse, and he lets go what you let go, and he overlooks what you overlook. He is not made in your image, my friend. He's made in the image of a holy God who is radically different in his way of thinking and dealing with sin than what you are. 
And that's the problem for our culture here. Youth, I'm concerned that we are portraying a God that looks just like us. God forbid we have a bigger picture here in the Bible that says we are called to be conformed to Him. He's not called to be conformed to us. And that, my friend, when you come into the presence of the God of the Bible, you start to realize what you're up against. You don't understand who you are until you see Him. And when you see him, you start to understand that that goodness that you're holding on to or that sense of self-dependence or self-confidence or self-righteousness, it is blasted away in a second because the weight of seeing your sin before a holy God that is sinless, it is too much to bear. And I want to point out to you tonight, you cannot be a Christian, my friend. You are not a Christian yet. I don't care if you've done confirmation classes. I don't care if you've passed through the waters of baptism. I don't care if you've attended this church for years. My question to you is, the mark of a believer is someone who has had a flash of desperation. It doesn't have to be fireworks. It wasn't mine. It was the sudden realization. It was the moment when I saw what I was up against and how God was not going to let me go. I had my verdict thinking it was his verdict when his verdict was I am perfect and you are not. What are you going to do about it? And so, my friends, the way that you become a Christian, and it can just be a flash, it doesn't have to be a Damascus Road experience, but it is this of seeing who God is and seeing in who you are and suddenly going, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. There has been only one person who has matched God's goodness. Only one. Only one life that has got the commendation from God of sinless, acceptable, righteous in his sight. It is his very son, Jesus. Jesus Christ coming down to earth, taking on our flesh and weakness and living the life we were meant to live doing it, doing it acceptably before God. And friends, there is one choice that you are left with tonight. And please, I don't want you to be offended. I'm not interested in your feelings. I want you to push back with your thinking. Look at your life in comparison to a living God that is holy and pure. What is your recourse? There is only one. His name is Jesus. And the way you become a Christian is you run to him with all your might. You see him as your only hope. You say, Jesus, I trust in nothing else. Apart from you, I'm a goner. That's salvation, my friend. You feel you are being saved. Not being patted on the back of saying, well done, you made it by the scruff of your neck and your bootstraps. Have you felt salvation of standing before God, this God who is righteous, the giver of your life, the giver of all of your breath, saying to you, how did you use it? And you come before him and you say to him, Jesus, Father, I know that I have sinned. And you run to Jesus and you stand before him and you feel the sense of being saved, rescued, snatched, and welcomed into the presence of God. And you might be sitting here saying, you know what? Wow, I've heard that before. I ask you tonight, is it real for you personally? Because Mark's not going to be standing next to you on that day. Your wife's not going to be standing next to you on that day. Your best friend's not going to be standing next to you on that day. Those people are going to be far away. It's going to be you and God doing business. And I ask you tonight, have you done that business with Jesus? Have you said to him, Jesus, I'm running only to you? 
And do you know what the wonder is? For the Christians in this place that have experienced this gospel, our great danger is we think that's old news. My friend, it's current news for you. Because what's happened to Jesus has happened to you. You have received the greatest thing. It is better than the greatest thing this world can give. You've received Jesus. His perfect life becomes your life. Because what's happened to Christ has happened to you. You're put in him. And everything that has happened to Jesus has happened to you. His perfect life becomes your life. His death and the bearing of the punishment for sin becomes your death and the punishment of your sin. And his resurrection becomes your resurrection. So that whoever believes in him is born again. That old dead life of sin is resurrected to newness of life. And you're going to be awaiting a resurrection body. You know why? Because don't you know, if you're in Jesus, and what has happened to him has happened to you, and where he is, you are, friends, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is seated in the heavenly places, and for the Christian, you are as good as already there. You've got a home. You've got a room waiting with your name upon it, prepared for you by Jesus. And true blessedness is seeing the shadow of death. We saw it from Psalm 23. Come over. You know, when you're young, you don't think about it. I'm trying to think of what the, the, the poet's name is. Shades of the prison house. He talks, about, he talks about this young man that's born, and everything's so glossy. But as he's getting older, so this cloud of death is coming. And you start running a bit faster. You start running a bit faster. And it's, yeah, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And finally, it overtakes you. Do you know what it is to experience the blessedness of this life? He's knowing that the worst thing that can happen to you, according to the world, can't touch you, according to Christ. That when you start to experience this radical grace where God says, I've forgiven you, it's okay. What? I haven't paid for it. I haven't earned for it. I haven't done anything to deserve that. Welcome into your presence. It's fine. I've paid for it in Jesus. It's done. Your debt is paid. It's to live in the presence of a God who is not a judge but a father. To know that you're going to be welcomed into a household that's warm and loving. That's going to be rejoicing for all eternity. And this life is just a short little flash in the pan before the glory of what is to come breaks in on us. Friends, that's true happiness. That's true happiness. That's true happiness. You're going to hear in Psalm 2 how God laughs. He laughs at what the world pits against him because, friends, the Christian knows where this is all going. J.C. Ryle said something powerful. He says, our people die well. Do you know this Jesus? Have you run to him tonight? Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That righteous means something that you have received by sheer grace. It's yours for the taking tonight. And if you've taken it, don't let it grow cold. Because the last point is this. And it's the third one. The call to live for that day. Verse 6. Do you know what the most tragic thing that can happen to a Christian? Do you know what it is? It is to receive this new life in Christ, but not walk in it. You've got it. You've got all the privileges of, it, of being saved by grace. But you miss the purpose of it. And that's what the psalmist closes in verse 6. He says, the Lord knows the way, the way of living. This application of righteousness. He knows the way of the righteous. Oh, but the way of living of the wicked will perish. And we are called to live for that day. We're called to live for that day. Friends, 
Now that you have received this life, how are you going to use it? What are you going to do with it? Because it matters to God. Life is short. And that word no means this. God sees every aspect of your life. He's connected to it. He knows it. He remembers it. Every part matters. And the precedent is this. Before I say that, do you notice the priority? Verse 6 comes after verse 5 for a reason. You have to receive this gift of life, but then you have to do something with it. Reception is verse 5. The application is verse 6. And friends, this is the precedent of our salvation. Just as God blessed the obedience of our belief in Jesus. That's verse 5. So he blesses the... Sorry. Just as the Father blessed the obedience of our belief in Jesus, that's verse 5. So he blesses the obedience of our behavior that conforms to Jesus, that's verse 6. And what the psalmist is talking about here is heavenly reward. Of God honoring obedience. And might I say to you tonight, church, blessed is the man or woman who sees how generous God is willing to be. What we do with our lives matters to him. How we use every part of our bodies. In other words, our minds, what you think about matters to God. Our eyes, what we look at. Our hands, what we do. Our feet, where we go. Our mouth, what we say. Our sexual organs. In other words, God's design for sex in marriage only. How we choose to use these bodies matters to God. And our obedience and conformity to Christ gets the commendation of well done. He knows. He remembers. How we use our time. How we use our stuff, our money, our cars, our houses, our clothes. How we use our relationships. God, family, friends, colleague, our church family, we bring everything to Jesus because as Christians, everything matters to him. Everything. And I'm coming back to the opening statement of my sermon tonight. What determines the decision-making of your life? What is your true north? Friends, it is that day with a capital D because for the Christian we understand that whatever is done in obedience and honor to Jesus will get God's eternal commendation, will get its well done. And I'll tell you now, you might not think much of that now, but you will think much of it then. Because when you start to think what it will mean for all eternity, before all of heaven and earth, to stand before Jesus and for him to look at you and say, well done. My friend, that gaze from his eyes and the eternal commendation will be something that you will not want to give up for anything. How can the Christian count it all joy? How can it be blessedness? How can we face this life that we're talking about tonight? And our response is James 1 verse 2, count it all joy. My friend, because the Christian on trial knows obedience and faithfulness to Christ will not go unnoticed that it will be eternally commended and that God will give us our eternal well done and it matters. It matters to him and it matters to us. That day, with a capital D, determines the course of our lives. What decisions do you have to make? The question you ask is, is it going to be pleasing to God on that day? 
When you think about your friendships and relationships, where they are with Jesus, that's what you've got to be thinking about. Is that day, do they know Christ? Do they know about Jesus? Do they have an understanding of grace and what it means to walk in the blessedness of forgiveness that is purchased by the body and blood of Jesus? That's what motivates us because we know this world is passing away. That's the point of the very last line. The way, the way of the wicked will perish. Everything that's given in disobedience to Christ is going to be burnt up, my friend. It's not going to be applauded. The Oscars might applaud now. The Grammys might applaud now. The Nobel Prize people might applaud now. On that day, the applause will be silence. Because on that day before Jesus, my friend, the only thing that's going to be applauded is those that have been obedient to Christ. And you won't want to miss that for anything. And so tonight, we want to enter into the bigger picture. My friends, my friends, what are you going to do with your life? It's short. You have a glorious opportunity to live for Jesus. You have a big picture that you're a part of. And and your life matters because you were handmade by God for such a time as this. And for us tonight, if you're like me, oh man, I don't wake up with this in the forefront of my mind every day. Do you know what the greatest joy for me is? Is that we serve a merciful Savior. And you might say to me, Matt, I have blown it bad. It might have been tonight. You committed some terrible sin that no one knows about. But when you hear in the presence of God, you're going, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I want to say to you tonight, I'm not interested whether or not you've fallen. I'm interested if you're going to get up. Because you can in Jesus. There is nothing that can separate you from this incredible love of God. And friends, have you read your Bible? What it will tell you is that God uses imperfect people that make terrible mistakes. And despite their sin, God overrules for the goodness, not only of His name, but for the preservation of their life, is we serve a God that bears with our weakness. And tonight, I want to commend you to the hands of a God that is loving and called Father. Far from this God that is like this giant man with a stick that's going to beat you if you don't get it right. He knows you're his child. You know, I'm, I'm living it right now. I've got a two-year-old boy. He can't even wee in a potty. He's in these nappies. He can hardly do anything. You've got to cut his food. You've got to give it to him. Oh, but as he's growing, as he's responding to my fathering, I'm watching him become a man day by day by day. And every second he succeeds, we celebrate. That's the heart of God for you, my friend. And he is going, he's from heaven. He's saying, go for it. Go for it. I've given you my spirit. I've given you my word. I've given you the dignity of being a member of my household. Don't you worry about your weaknesses. I love working with weakness. Because my strength gets the glory for the success through weakness. Today, my friends, what are you doing with your life? Is it the fact that you are feeling guilt and shame that you can't get up? I want to say drop that guilt and shame. You're in the kingdom of grace if you're a Christian. You get up and run. I say, how long am I going to take to beat this thing in my life? I tell you what, no matter how long it takes, God will be faithful to you. He'll supply what you need. He will not withhold a stitch to help you get to do what he's called you to do. How can I say that? I'll say it because of this. If he did not spare Jesus when we were rotten in our sin, how much more will he give us Jesus when we're alive with him? Friends, tonight, I, I have young adults on my heart tonight. Would you just let me speak my mind? We see too many of you wonderful people coming for the year and not do anything and go. 
or wait until it's the right time to start doing things for the Lord, I want to encourage you, don't think like that. Think that Jesus could be coming at any moment and make the most of it whilst you're here. Youth, I don't know what's facing you, but I want to tell you, you have got a golden opportunity to daily live for Jesus. Don't think you have 30 years and say, oh, you know, I've sown my, I don't know where, I've sown my wild oats. Anybody heard that? I don't know what that means. <laughs> I've sown my wild oats. And then when I finally have to be a responsible mom and dad and I find that person and I've got to be a responsible husband and wife, I'll settle down and I'll start living uprightly, whatever that means. You don't know, you don't know, you don't know. Oh, friends, come. Live your life in a bigger picture than just the humdrum of your day-to-day experience that numbs the fact that you are part of a great design in which you're called to play your part. You have every reason to run tonight. Every reason. What's your next adventure on the horizon? It's there. Go for it.